you've had the economy and inflation as a top issue across the board all cycle. And there has not been a single coherent uh, economic message out of the White House, out of Nancy Pelosi, out of Chuck Schumer. Um, and, and I think they're really, they're going to wake up in, you know, November 10th or whenever the hell all these votes are cast. And they're going to be just like, what were we doing here? Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And this is Scott Jennings. Thanks for joining us on Flyover Country. We are less than two weeks before the election. Along with me tonight, Joe Arnold, Kevin Grout, Jared Crawford, Sean Southern will be along in a few minutes. And... A new addition to the podcast this week. I'm proud to welcome my friend, renowned Republican pollster from Public Opinion Strategies. You see him quoted sometimes in the press. You, you've attended a focus group in the last 20 years. He may have been the proctor of it. Robert Blizzard joins Flower Country. Robert, coming to us from Northern Virginia tonight. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I am looking forward to being here and, and chatting with you all. And, uh, it should be a fun, fun conversation. Joe, Kevin, Jared, good to see you all on uh, cam tonight. Mr. Jennings. Hey, Scott. Scott, good to see you. I mean, can I'm we in, do that? In. Can we address the elephant in the room, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> Robert, I don't know if you know this. It, it is Scott's birthday today. So a special episode. Happy birthday, Scott. Wow. Oh, happy well, birthday. Yeah. That's true. I was, I was dreaming of spending my 45th birthday with you. This is this is incredible. But for you to begin the uh, podcast with the same metaphor as John Fetterman, uh, I, I don't know if that's really a birthday present for Scott Jennings. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and good night. <laughs> oh man, I, I tell you, we got We'll talk about that tonight as we go through the map. But boy, that was that was wild. I, I have never in my. 20-something years in this business seen or even heard of anything like that. I mean, Robert, you obviously watched it, fellas. Yeah. I, I mean, I just my, – my number one question at the end of it was they knew his limitations. They had to have known his limitations. Obviously, they're around him all the time, they meaning his family and his campaign. Yeah. How in the world did they conclude that going through with that was a smart idea? I'll, I mean, goodness gracious. I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I got home yesterday. I, I watched, I, I decided to put it on because I've done some stuff in the state uh, in terms of polling and everything like that. And kind of an interest in the race. And uh, I, I couldn't turn it off. It was like watching a train wreck. Um, and you know, the, you know, all the rubbernecking that happens on the side of the road as you're going down the highway. I, I could not believe how bad it was. And I got, to be honest, I, I don't think that folks, you know, and, and obviously with a, with a partisan hat on here, I, I also don't think folks are given Oz enough credit for, uh, you know, kind of being a little bit restrained, I think, uh, in, in terms of how he performed, uh, because he could have gotten overly aggressive. You know, he could have gotten, uh, he could have gone overboard a little bit and the storylines might have been different out of it. But, uh, you know, I, I, look, there was a poll out last week that had, I think it was a CBS poll that said about 30% of Pennsylvania voters were uh, indicated that they were going to watch the debate. Um, I'll tell you right now, if 100% of Pennsylvania voters watched the debate, I, there would be no way that John Fetterman would win that race. I mean, just no way. 
Um, but I think that we'll just have to see what how it plays out here over the next, you know, whatever, 10 days left or so. Yeah, I want to get into Pennsylvania. We'll, when we go through the Senate map, uh, that'll be our number one state. And I and I know you've been doing some work over there and you have some views. I want to want to break that down. For our listeners of Flyover Country, uh, the reason I invited uh, Mr. Blizzard on the show this week is because Robert uh, does as much polling as any Republican pollster in America in Flyover Country. Uh, I've certainly known Robert many years uh, from work done in Kentucky, but all the states that we sort of talk about in terms of flyover country and the politics of middle America, Robert, I think has a finger on the pulse of them because of all of the public opinion survey work and the focus group work he's done. I trust his judgment and his opinion quite a bit. And with two weeks to go uh, until election day, I wanted to get uh, a real working pollsters eye view. And Robert, uh, tell first of all, you're a working Republican pollster. You get hired by campaigns and independent yep. expenditure groups. You're not a media pollster. Nope. You're not. You're not a. Um, you know, someone who who is sort of superficially doing this. You you are providing data to campaigns. And and I was hoping you might talk a little bit about your career and sure. your company. But but explain maybe the difference between the kinds of polls and products you produce for campaigns and political entities versus what we might be seeing in the media day after day after day. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the the biggest difference between what, what I do and, and other kind of camp, I mean, I think true campaign pollsters do versus what a lot of your listeners here, you know, may may see on, on Twitter or, or read in their local paper, see on, on local television, is the media polling, if you will, especially the state-by-state media polling or even congressional district media polling, uh, where you have a, a news organization sponsor a survey. I mean, you know, Scott, we could even go all the way back. I don't know, but I mean, remember the bluegrass poll in Kentucky and just how you know that, that would go. Um, there's also many academic institutions that will, will sponsor a poll, Quinnipiac, Marist, um, Emerson College. Uh, and so what their goal is, is, is essentially to help media organizations, I think, drive media coverage of the race, drive clicks online, and they're mostly focused on the horse race. Uh, who's up? Who's down? What's the score? They're up one. They're down two. They're up three um, to try to you know, drive a story. Um, our job on the campaign side, as you said, a kind of a working Republican pollster, um, is is essentially very different than that. Um, our job is to get people to win races and position our, our candidates or our campaigns or our, if, we're, if we're polling for a public affairs or corporate client uh, positioning them to, to win a battle of public opinion. Um, to me, I, what's funny is I was talking to some about this the other day, you know, most people, when they see a media poll, uh, something out there in the public realm, the first thing they do is look at the ballot. You know, what's the horse race? Who's up? Who's down? What's the score? If you will, uh, to be honest, I mean, that's one of the maybe third, fourth, maybe fifth things I look at when we do a survey. Um, you know, because uh, what I'm looking at is is what are the trend lines in the race? What are the verbatims or open-ended comments say in the survey? You know, we're digging deeper into cross tabs. You know, most public polls out there, Scott, as you know, do not really you know give much in terms of cross tabs or um, meth- even methodology about how the survey was conducted and, and and how they gathered the responses. And so, our job is really to is really to figure out wherever we are in terms of the ballot. Let's say October fifteenth. You know, whether we're down to, up to, tied, or wherever we are, 
how do we position our candidates and our campaigns to be in a position to win on election day? And, and so for us, it's much more about message testing, issue development, um, you know, digging into crosstabs to help influence our, our media buys, our direct mail targets, our digital uh, targeting. And so it's, it's a much more, I think, nuanced look at, at polling than just the horse race stuff you see in the public realm. Let me ask you about the horse race question, which um, I hear you on uh, your lack of interest in that versus other things. For most political observers, you know, they wake up every day and they're desperate, as you said, for that horse race data all day long. It seems like in this cycle, you know, we're getting data in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona and other states. Some of it's coming from people you've heard of. Some of it's coming from people I've certainly never heard of. Um and the data is often so close, you know, in, in such and such state, this person's up one. Now they're down two. Now they're up one. Now they're down three. And people are obsessively tracking that, which to me, um, I mean, it's all sort of statistical noise, right? I mean, if you've got a bunch of Senate races that appear to be between plus two and minus two, depending on who your preferred candidate is, you shouldn't allow your emotions to be buoyed or ruined on any given day by this. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think the other point is along those lines, there's so much out there that it's pick your narrative polling because you can have even Scott. I mean, I think it was even today in Georgia, uh, there was a poll release that had uh, Walker winning by a couple points. And there was also either today or I can't remember yesterday. It's all, you know, late in the cycle here. It's all kind of spinning together for me a little bit, but within the last 24 hours, let's say, um, there was a poll ahead, uh, Warnock winning. And so the Republicans, the Republican media operations, the Republican communications directors that we all know and love, they can hammer out, hey, this, you know, here's a poll, we're winning, we have the big mo, and it's the complete opposite on the left. And and so the other challenge with doing it that way is I think what we're, we're missing, and I know it's difficult in today's media climate to really dig down. We are in that, you know, the, the smart brevity, if you will, out there. Um, but I do think it is, it's, it's difficult because we are missing when we look at just horse race margins, um, what you're essentially missing is sometimes the real story about what is going on in a race, um, where, where the candidate is vis-a-vis 50%. You know, I know you guys talked a little bit about that on your, um, I think your podcast last week, um, you know, where, where the, basically where the vote share is of somebody. Um, and I think the big story to me, this cycle is is the is the Democratic candidates for especially for U.S. Senate, especially in a federal race, and, and obviously I think this will play out on the congressional side. But where the Democratic candidate is vis-a-vis Joe Biden's job approval rating, because to the point you made about the kind of back and forth on the overall ballot, the one thing that all these public polls and, and even our polls have are they usually have a pretty decent number of undecided voters, you know, eight to ten points here or there. Uh, the one thing that there's very few people that are undecided about is Joe Biden's job approval. And that's not dissimilar to what we saw, you know, four years ago with Donald Trump. I mean, I still never met somebody who is kind of iffy on Donald Trump. Um, and same thing with Barack Obama. And so there's a hard number there of, of support for kind of the Democratic Party. And that's where Joe Biden's number is. And it's very, very difficult. And, you, and I, you know, I've looked way back at this. It's very, very difficult for any candidate especially in a federal race, to run more than a handful of points ahead of where their president's job approval rating is 
in their state. There's obviously very some exceptions in there over time. You know, you got like the mansions of the world and and Tester, you know, Montana and Alaska is always kind of fuzzy. But for the most part, it's very, very difficult to run ahead of that. And that's I think the challenge for the Democrats this time around is there's a there's a very tight ceiling um, that I think a lot of their candidates have hit. And I think that's that's part of the reason why we're seeing really good numbers for Republicans right now up and down the ticket. The voice uh, you're hearing on the Flower Country podcast this week is Robert Blizzard, uh, one of the top Republican pollsters in the country of public opinion strategies. Robert, as you advise people who are uh, interested in the outcome of this midterm election, who are checking these polls every day, what is the number for Joe Biden? If he is at what number in a state, if you're what number does he have to be over for a Democrat to reasonably have a chance to outrun it. And if he's below that, what, what's your cutoff mark? I, then, and I've, I've gone back and forth with this a little bit over the last month as I've, as I've dug into this. I mean, if you look at, for example, 538 polling average and RCP, the real clear politics polling average, these polling aggregators, I, when you look at the averages, I mean, even going back to June, Biden's approval rating has been stuck between basically 39 and 43 at the national level. And so the number that I keep coming back to is probably about 42 percent for Biden. And I think the good rule of thumb, and obviously there's going to be some exceptions out there, but the good rule of thumb is if Joe Biden is at 42 points in terms of his job approval rating, 42 percent or higher, that I think a Democrat can win can win that race. Um, I think that's the the far end of the ceiling with a Democrat getting maybe 48, 49%, you know, a couple points going to a third party candidate and, and winning a race. Um, but if they're under 42, I mean, if you're in a state where, where Biden's in at 40 or 41, to ask a Democratic candidate to run eight, nine points ahead of where Joe Biden is, very, very difficult. And again, historically, it just, it just has not happened. Um, you know, I mean, if you go back four years ago, um, the, the national uh, congressional vote, so everybody votes for, for Congress. The Republican candidates nationally got 45. Uh, Donald Trump's job approval rating going to Election Day was 44. You know, one point difference. You go back to 14. Uh, Democrats were at 46. Obama was at 42 going to Election Day. So four-point difference. 2010, there was a one-point difference between Democrats and Obama. And the biggest, uh, you know, gap we've ever seen was 06, where, where George Bush was at about 39% going into Election Day, and Republicans got 44%. So they lost, you know, the, the national vote by about eight points, but Republicans ran about five points ahead of Bush. So, I mean, that's that's the largest we've seen at the national level. And so I think it's and, – and when you look at these Senate races right now – and you look at what's what we've seen out there. I mean, even today, when you look at Colorado, and I will talk through these states, but we look at the lean kind of toss-up states out there, guess what? The Democratic candidate in Colorado, New Hampshire, Arizona, you go right down the list, is running, on average, about five points ahead of where Joe Biden is. And so I think that's kind of the ceiling where, where Democrats are. Let me ask you a question about um, the head-to-heads we see in the public polls. So if you're a Republican, and you're desperately interested in Republicans winning the Congress and winning these Senate races. And you see in the national polling, New York Times, Monmouth, whatever it happens to be, that Republicans have a lead on the generic ballot. Or you read that it, it appears the issues are now lining up with the Republican campaign. So you hear that and you think things are going OK. 
Then you look at your favorite pollster for your state, Georgia, Pennsylvania, whatever. Right. And you never quite see the Republican ahead. You may see them in a statistical tie, a couple points down, but you rarely see them ahead or over the hump. Your assertion, based on what I've heard you say tonight, is that that shouldn't trouble you because there's a good chance that the Republican is going to run better than what you might be led to believe based on some of the media head-to-heads? Yeah, I mean, I yes, especially in spots where the Democratic candidate is below 50% or below even 49%. I mean, right now, when you look at kind of the the averages out there, um, in kind of, again, just the Senate's kind of the easiest to talk about because everyone's very familiar with it, but the real clear politics averages, they have, they have Bennett at 49 in Colorado. That might be the, the limit, you know what I mean? New Hampshire, they got her at 48. Arizona, the, the RCP average now has, has Kelly at 46. You know, I think that's that's definitely in play. Uh, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, all 47%. Uh, Wisconsin, 48% for the Democrat. Ohio, 45 for for Ryan. North Carolina, uh, she's at 44, you know, especially in the Marist poll that came out today. So essentially all of these Democrats right now are below that, you know, that Mendoza line, if you will. Um, and I think the key is, is I have not done a poll this cycle in any state um, across the country in blue area, purple area, red area, um, where I've looked at undecided voters on the ballot and said, you know what? These people are not voting Democrat. They strongly disapprove of the president. They believe the country is moving off on the wrong track by, in some cases, 60, 70 points. Um, there's all that talk out there, and I'm sure it'll be an, an, a common refrain from the press after the election about the, the shy Trump voter or the hidden Trump voter. I, they're not hidden if you can find them in the crosstabs, is the way I put it. And I think they're there. I just I think that they are coming home late. They're momentum voters. Um, and I think I, I, if, you, if you're in a state and you are concerned because your candidate uh, is losing a race 47-46, but Joe Biden's approval rating is at 40, I, I would say nine times out of 10, the Republicans going to win that seat. I want to bring the rest of the panel into the conversations. Joe Arnold, uh, Kevin Grout, and Jared Crawford are here. Um, and and, and, and let me over. ask you, And oh, did Sean pop in? He did. Yes. Indeed. Hello, oh, friends. Oh, welcome. <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> Thank you for obliging me, Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Punctuality is its own reward, Sean. Thank you for <laughs> showing up. I was following a Joe Arnold uh, pre- uh precedent <laughs> that's right he was late the other day um uh i want to i want to bring the i want to bring the guys into the into the conversation robert um but i want to i, I want to ask one more question you mentioned aggregators i think a lot of people every day i get a lot of text messages from people you know who are looking at these aggregators real clear is one 538 is another there are others i guess smaller versions of this out there which one do you look at on a daily basis do you trust one of these aggregating models or are they so similar that it doesn't matter? I don't, I don't necessarily pick one or the other. Um, I, what I actually find, I mean, look, as a, as a pollster, I, I'm very different than even the most, um, uh, you know, dorky of, uh, of political strategists that will, will probably reads this stuff for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Cause I just look at everything. I, I kind of consume in this job. You just kind of consume polls uh, for better or worse, just what you do. Um, I think I think there's a lot of problems with with the aggregators out there. I think we've seen those before. I think again, just kind of based on our conversation here, I, they rely way too heavily on horse race. 
um, and the horse race margins. I mean, I think that's that's a big issue. I mean, when you look at the 538 forecast, for instance, just on the Senate side, um, on June 1st, you know, they, they forecasted 60% chance of Republicans winning the Senate. Uh, Biden's approval rating was at 41. Uh, the generic ballot nationally was, was a two-point deficit for Democrats, basically dead even, right? Um, today, October 26th, Biden's approval is, again, essentially the same, 42%. Um, the generic ballot is, you know, a little bit of a Republican advantage, yet for some reason, Republican Senate uh, controls only down now to 45 percent of forecast. I don't know what the hell they're looking at. Um, the other problem I have with some of the aggregators is is they assign grades to certain pollsters as if they are predicting the race. Again, my job's not I'm, I'm basically and Scott, you know, this from all the campaign work we've done over the years. It's October 26. I'm this is my last week polling. Uh, for right. races, um, because we're, we're using this to make decisions, uh, not to try to like see who gets the score right. Nobody cares. We're trying to win. Um, and so I think that's that's the other challenge here. And there's a lot more bad polls right, to go out over the next 10 days um, out there. And I think that's a that's a big problem, because when you're when you're deciding, you know, who's a good pollster based on on the horse race. And especially when you look at kind of our side and I have a lot of good Democratic pollster friends. I mean, I, I use the example of a couple cycles ago, uh, I was polling for Claudia Tenney, as I still do, up in New York 22. And our last poll was in, in the middle of October. And we were down, uh, we were down, I think, two and a half, three points. We were down about three points. And um, we looked at the data. Uh, we made decisions based on the data. Um, we made, you know, messaging and tracking. And, and here's what we should do. And here's should be our targets. And, and we basically used it as a strategic uh, vessel. Uh, to make tactical changes, and we win the race. So, if I had released that poll in mid-October, would I my, would they say the poll was wrong, or was my advice based on the poll at the time correct? And that's that's the trouble with trying to get into like this debate about the horse races. Even the point I'm making now, I mean, you know, if, if, even if a Democrat is going into election day up two points, but they're at 47, they're probably going to lose. And so, was the poll wrong, or is just how we're reading the poll wrong? And so, I I don't put too much. I know the aggregators are everybody loves them and they're into them, but I, I would just take everything with a grain of salt, um, especially in midterm cycles. Hey, Robert, this is Joe Robert, Arnold. But... I, um, as someone oh, sure. who Go was ahead, a practitioner of journalism for a number of years, and unfortunately was affiliated with the, with the bluegrass poll you mentioned before. <laughs> uh, oh my god. <laughs> You got that one, and you'll, you, you, you'll be wearing that shirt forever. I will. I will. When I, I it just John, that when 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 I when Joe Girth and I agree on something, right? And yeah. it was about that bluegrass poll, exactly. You know something. You know something was. was oh my covered. gosh, that was yeah. you know. But yeah, you know, it's it's the it's you get what you get, and you don't throw a fit, as we say to my children. <laughs> you know that kind of thing. So we. But to your point earlier, and I appreciate what you said about you know you try to. Talk about these things as being a snapshot in time, as well as the, the trajectories or the trends are more important than than yeah. using these as a, as a predictor. Certainly. Um, so anyway, I appreciate your work, and I will tell you that uh, we certainly followed that when I was uh, when I was in practicing or malpracticing journalism back in the day. Let me ask you a question, uh, just as a complete tangent here for a moment on Pennsylvania, though, because I'm just curious yeah. about. And you guys mentioned the, the debate uh, on Wednesday night or on Tuesday night a moment ago. Seeing that there have already been 630,000 votes cast early in Pennsylvania, and there's there's you know, more than 8 million registered voters in Pennsylvania, I'm just curious about, do you, do you try to chart that at all in terms of 
where people were on a certain time versus where they'll be on election day? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. So, I mean, obviously, we we do a lot of, um, and, and not even myself, but I think just the party apparatuses, if you will, do a lot of tracking of, of AV, uh, absentee voting and early voting and, and, and what it looks like from a modeled standpoint, you know, who's voted that's rep- likely Republican, who's voted that's likely Democrat. And I'm assuming the Democrats do the exact same thing, you know, on their side of the aisle. Um, what I actually found in 2020, and I think it was part of the reason why most of my stuff was pretty accurate going into Election Day, when we had such significant early voting going on in a lot of places, was I, I think you're silly if you don't use that data. And I think to that point, Joe, in Pennsylvania, there hasn't been a, a significant early vote yet, but we've seen a lot in some of these other states. You know, Florida, for instance, North Carolina, Ohio, enough where I don't know how the, some of the public polling out there is even factoring that stuff in um, to, you know, what they're doing. And again, we're trying to, they're usually, and I'm not knocking them by saying this at the state-by-state level, but they're usually not very sophisticated enough to be able to pull all that stuff in and understand what's really happening in these in these types of races. Um I do think just, uh, uh, again, just taking the pollster hat off, putting the kind of Republican strategist hat on, if you will, I, I do think it's a great argument against early voting, though, um, you know, and and, uh, and doing it so early um, because I, I would guess, I mean, I, I saw just before I hopped on here that there one of the things that was trending at Google Trends, at least, was, uh, was folks in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, Googling, how do I change my vote? Uh, because I, I, I do think there were there's going to be some uh, again. If anybody watched that debate, it was it was a train wreck. Um, and I just I, I think that's you know it, it's not like a presidential level where you can kind of track stuff because you have more resources to do it. But uh, I, I think that's it's it's concerning for sure. Robert, again, appreciate you being with us tonight. I think uh, you, as it's been said, you're one of the the top pollsters. Uh, I know we've worked together in the past and we rely upon your advice. I was curious, could you comment a little bit about this cycle and how you've seen top issues for voters shift over the course of the year, particularly post-Dobbs and then as we're getting here in the home stretch, what have you seen occur over the course of this uh, summer and fall? And then can you talk a little bit about uh, how independent voters are are seeing uh, the election uh, as we get closer to election day? No, it's a great question. I mean, I think to me that's, and that's, again, that's another thing I think we capture more. And I think one thing in the, I think a, a positive on the public poll side, media poll side, because I don't want to be seeing somebody just bashing them because I, mm-hmm. I do find use in them. But I do think the national polling, especially when we get into issues, and I do think that's extraordinarily helpful. Um, and I think you can watch the trend lines on that stuff. But But to that point, I, we are look. We've been looking at, I think, essentially, voters kind of talking and, and candidates at, at some point now kind of talking over um, one another uh, to the other side. I mean, Republican voters all cycle have been extraordinarily focused on uh, jobs in the economy. Uh, there's a lot of economic anxiety, as we know out there, um, cost of living, inflation, rising costs, just in general. Um, Republicans in particular on immigration and the border. I mean, that was uh, when we would do uh, primary Republican primary polls during the kind of those campaigns, immigration uh, and the border was, was always the top issue. Uh, It didn't matter if I was polling in Alabama or Oregon. Uh, It was the, it was the top issue among Republican primary voters. And so that's, that's been extraordinarily clear. Democratic voters, 
on a completely different planet. And I don't say that in a negative sense. It's just they have a, a completely different set of issue priorities. Uh, you know, in the latest NBC News poll, I mean, their, their number one concern right now is threats to democracy, uh, followed by abortion, followed by uh, climate change. You know, so they're completely different universes right now. Um, and I think the benefit for Republicans this cycle is that independent voters, kind of the second part of your question, independent voters look and feel and are acting, and I think they're going to vote much more like Republican voters this fall uh, because they are much more focused on uh, personal pocketbook issues, costs, inflation, uh, supply chain problems, uh, their 401k is getting destroyed, the economy, um, uh, education, which you know I think is another kind of uh, you know kind of under the radar issue right now that, that for Republicans, um, and then the other issue I think that's been uniting Republicans and, and I think a subset of independent voters in the suburbs is crime and public safety. Um, you know, it's not when you test it as an issue priority, it's not one of the top three issues, but when you test it in a in a message sense. It is a it is a very persuasive driver against the Democrats, and it has been all cycle. And I think that's I mean, we were talking about Pennsylvania earlier. Uh, There's obviously a lot of talk about Fetterman's health now. But the reason that race is where it is today is the crime issue. Um, There's no doubt. Uh, I mean, they have just pounded Fetterman on crime. um, And that's that's happened there. And so these independent voters. Oh, and by the way, disapprove of the president by two to one. You know, that's just kind of that, that under the radar point, but I think it's it's really important right now. Robert, I want to get to Kevin in, in just a minute. I know, in, and I agree with you that Republicans have been fully focused on inflation and the economy uh, for most of the year, but the crime issue, yeah. to me, you mentioned it's been uh, really what reeled in Fetterman in Pennsylvania, but it also seems to me it's what has, has sunk Mandela Barnes and Wisconsin. I think it's uh, prohibited Sherry Beasley from rising in North Carolina. I think it's why the New York governor's race is closer than it, than it ought to be. So, so it, th- in this particular case, um, why do you think that is? It's, as you mentioned, it's not the top issue, but it's visceral. It's emotional. And uh, I was wondering if you could speak to why that is. You know, why is it that something that, that is third or fourth or fifth on the list uh, could be so determinative uh, when it comes to reeling in uh, an opponent? To be honest, I think it's because it's the clearest contrast. Um, and I think it's the easiest contrast for voters, especially suburban voters across the country, to truly see the differences between the two parties. And I don't think it needs a lot of education. And when I mean education, I mean you know, trying to explain your five point economic policy or, or your here are the three steps we're going to take toward, you know, solving the inflation problem or, you know, whatever. It's 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 very simple. And I think the other point is I think it's very believable for voters that the crime issue has happened in, in urban areas. It is started kind of with with the the riots and everything kind of coming out of the the uh, you know, during the pandemic you know, in a really bad spot. Um, regardless of whether the actual crime rates are up or down in a district or a state, the perception among voters is that crime is rising. Um, I think they're seeing more of it. I think they're seeing actual violent crime um, in terms of what they're seeing even on social media. Again, whether it's accurately happening or not, that is the perception out there. And I think it is the, it is the, it is the easiest thing for a voter to believe 
that the Democrats have been not soft on crime, but weak on crime have not. And, and, and really, I think to that point, Scott, they've contributed to it mm. um, with, with some of their policies and allowing things to go on um, and look the other way a bit in some states uh, and during even the riots post Floyd and everything like that. I think there's just been a little bit of it. I mean, Hell, I was looking. I mean, I do a lot of work in Kentucky. I saw you last night. There was a story in Louisville that I think you tweeted about it today. I think that's where I first saw it. Was like there was somebody got uh, their throat slit last night in downtown Louisville. I mean, this isn't like just you know traditional like rob robberies or or gun violence or, or these really other bad things that are obviously key issues. But this is like, this is viscerally, this is like hatred crime. It's like a horror, it's like a horror movie. I yeah. mean, a random, a random guy walks up behind two tourists and slits yep. their throats. Yeah. Didn't know them. And, uh, and, and I, I was sort of surmising uh, today that, you know, I do think in, in certain places, some of these urban areas, People were trapped in their houses for two years during the pandemic, and now people feel trapped in their houses because they don't feel safe to go out into the cities where they live. And so it's you're living in this world where you feel trapped, you feel anxious, uh, and you just have a simple question. Who is trapping me here? Why is why is the world in which I'm forced to live so darn unsafe? And who's making these policy decisions? And I agree with you. There's a clear contrast. Kevin, what do you have? Yeah, this has been a really interesting conversation, especially what you were talking about with poll accuracy and looking at it a different way, because especially for Republicans, especially in flyover country, the last few cycles, it seems like, oh, day after election, the polls were way off. Don't believe the polls anymore. So are you right. saying we, we need to tip that on your head or just believe your polls because all the other polls are garbage? <laughs> but uh, you, you've no, got no, it. <laughs> no, because because I could do a poll today and I could find something very similar. Um, potentially in terms of what you're seeing in the public realm. But the way the poll is explained, the way we talk through the poll, the way the poll is digested by the, the media and by the public is completely off. I mean, I could do a poll that in Ohio today that shows it a, a three or four point race, which is basically where the public stuff has it. But I, I'll tell you right now, I think I think Vance, I, I, I've put in my head, Vance probably is going to get 55 in Ohio, maybe around that range. Um, and, and, and I would use the poll to basically explain that. Like, okay, look, here's where Tim Ryan is. He's sitting at 45. You know, he's got 98% of the Democrat vote coalesced behind him. He's already at whatever percent of independent voters. And when you look at the 8 to 10% who are undecided, you know, they disapprove of Biden, you know, 4 to 1. They think the country's off on the wrong track. They dislike both candidates. Uh, guess what's going to happen? They're going to vote Republican. I mean, it's it's not necessarily all that different in some of these races, especially these top tier Senate races. It's not all that different, to be honest, from like what we saw in 2016, which was the most important crosstab that never really got talked about outside of kind of I think Republican and Democratic Party circles was the crosstab of the voters who disliked both Trump and Hillary Clinton, which was about 20, 25 percent of the electorate. They didn't like either one of those candidates. And so the press stories were, well, Trump's image is 10, 15 points worse than Hillary's or whatever. But when you looked at that quarter of the vote that didn't like either candidate, uh, when we did our, our um, election night, our kind of our exit polls, if you will, internally, and we, and, and we looked at how those people voted, they voted 70% for Donald Trump because they wanted different. They wanted change. They wanted new things. They wanted to go against the status quo. 
and you're going to see the same thing here. And that's, that's the other problem with the public stuff is I, they're not looking at tabs, cross tabs. They're not diving deep in this. You know, the Oz Fetterman race would be a great race for a public pollster to go. Let's look at those voters that dislike both Fetterman and Oz. How are they, how are they likely to vote, you know, this fall? Um, and I just, you don't see that kind of level. So I think that the thing I would look at is I would take the, the horse race stuff with a grain of salt and really try to dig deeper into the, uh, into the, if they have them, into what's going on, where's Biden's approval rating, what's the top issue, um, who's trending in the right direction. But it's, it's hard because, you know, some stuff is not really meant to be um, something that the public is really, you know, should be dealing with. And so you got these, these aggregators out there, the 538s and, and others, they're trying to forecast and all this stuff. But all I think that does, guys, I think it just adds the confusion for people. And then, and then you know, it's, it's, there's always going to be problems with that. So what you're saying when we mon- Monday morning quarterback, we don't blame the pollsters. We blame Scott and his friends for not explaining it well enough. <laughs> no, wait good, a minute. Good no, to know. <laughs> That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> we're, the, we're the weathermen. We are the, uh, hey, here's, is it raining or snowing or, or sunny outside? And then it's it's Scott and his team's job to, to solve the problem. So if it doesn't get solved, it's not the poll. The poll wasn't wrong. Right. I like that he said Jared, Scott Jared. and his team because then that's now yeah, us. Okay, too, okay. So. Yeah, that's right. It's, um, it's, all mostly, your... it's mostly you guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Robert, I, I want to ask you about the, the two issues for voters that, to me, and we've talked about this tonight, that are kind of those unique issues, crime and abortion. Cost yeah. of living, the economy, gas prices tend to be both top issues but also motivating issues for voters. They really kind of get you up and get you to the polls. Um, coming off you know, the, the sort of the summer of the riots – the Dobbs decision, I imagine our friends on the left said, this is our moment to seize on this. Post-riots, our side sort of said, like, let's seize on this. Crime in cities, especially Philadelphia, St. Louis, you know, obviously on the rise. Democrats pumped millions into making abortion a huge issue. We pumped a lot of money into making crime a huge issue. Crime is now a top three, top four, top five issue. Abortion isn't. What did the other side do wrong? I mean, what, you know, when you see a poll that says, you know, here's our moment to seize on this issue and, you know, Democrats spent upwards of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and it didn't register. I mean, what, what went wrong there? Why is it not registering with voters? And then what can kind of go right there? Uh, I mean, those are the questions that I would ask uh, the democratic strategists, yeah. to be honest with you. I mean, cause that the thing I struggle with, and, and a lot of times, and and you guys know this, and I know Scott knows this from all of his experience in these campaigns, is a lot of times you start thinking about, okay, what if we were the other side? Yeah. You know, what would we do? You know, when you're in a wave year like this, it's it's hard. You're 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 fighting uphill. You know, so what do you what do you do? Um, the the best most efficient way to win when you are on the other side of a wave is to make your individual candidate an unacceptable alternative. Um, and that means be it's that's straight one-on-one character. Um, you can't get into issues. You can't get into policy. You really got to make that person unfit for office. That's the way you survive a wave because everybody wants to vote with that party. And you've got to kind of convince them that, you know, they got to check their partisanship at the door, which we all know is also becoming, you know, much more difficult to do. The abortion thing, you know, I, I think the challenge there is, you know, there have been these little, the economy, the inflation have been across the board along the top, the main issue, um, basically for the better part of the cycle, right? But these these one-off issues have popped up 
for Democrats, whether it was gun violence and then it goes back down, um, whether it was it's threats to democracy or gone back down, whether it's the Supreme Court fight, you know, whether it's whatever. And abortion, I think, had more staying power for the Democrats and the Democratic base, um, because I think they did. A, I think the Democrats did a nice job over the summer really focusing in on that issue and making it a, a, a centerpiece. And then I think they lucked out by having that Kansas uh, ballot issue, if you guys remember, um, you know, where it went down and it kind of fed this media narrative and their narrative that this was changing the, the, the zone. You know, this was changing everything that was was really going on in terms of the issue agenda for voters. The problem with that is I never saw a single survey uh, between, you know, Dobbs and now that saw the abortion issue rise above maybe three or four with independent voters. It never moved. It, it was a Democratic voter concern. It remains a Democratic voter concern. It is It is not something that Republican independent voters have, have focused in on. And I, the, the reason I say she asked Democratic strategists about all this is you've had the economy and inflation as a top issue across the board all cycle. And there has not been a single coherent uh, economic message out of the White House, out of Nancy Pelosi, out of Chuck Schumer. Um, and, and I think they're really, they're going to wake up in, you know, November 10th or whatever the hell all these votes are cast. And they're going to be just like, what were we doing here? <laughs> uh, because I just, I don't, I, I, it's, it's mind boggling to me when you see the, you know, the same data over and over again, and you just don't see them t- even remotely talking about it and and in their campaign ads right now you know they're hitting us on abortion everywhere i mean like like that's the only issue going on you know it's not the economy it's not cost of living it's not the border being open it's not our crime it's not schools being closed it's not it's not even healthcare or guns it's just abortion everywhere and i think they are they're going to be some a lot of monday morning quarterbacking about an economic message for democrats going into 23 and 24 is it possible, well, Robert, Scott, I'm sorry if I could. Is, is it possible, though, yeah. that the that abortion is maybe a, a very narrow antidote? In other words, if you're if you're a Democratic strategist and you're saying, what is the one thing we can do to be able to break through? You were saying before is to disqualify a candidate because of whatever uh, they're unfit for office. Is, 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 is maybe this position being unfit amongst suburban women? Maybe I think there's a little more of a tug of war with suburban women, um, with especially I would I would kind of say the white college educated suburban women, like you know more of a narrow look. But guys, I got to be honest with you. I mean, we've o- we've always struggled with that group, and we are going to continue to struggle with that group. Even even with Youngkin winning in Virginia last year, when you look at the exit polls, we, Republicans still have issues with that. You know that white suburban independent woman audience and so i think the abortion if it wasn't abortion guys it would have been something else it would have been gun violence it would have been health care it would have been something on you know something it, it would have been that i think abortion's filling that void about what that issue is for those folks um yeah robert um one question for you about the house yep. uh, i know you're polling in a lot of house races and then joe is going to run us through the senate map and i want to do some quick vignettes on each Senate race based on your your observations. It strikes me based on the national winds and the way they appear to be blowing, and also just me interpreting where the Democrats have retrenched, where they've moved their money, where they're investing, and where the Republicans are investing in certain blue areas. It strikes me that right now, 
the expert forecasts on the range for Republican pickups may be understating what could happen on election night. At, at this point, uh, if I got asked on television, I'd probably say we're at north of 30 right now. I know a lot of the forecasts still have it in the 12 to 20 range. Uh, based on your polling with all the House races you're involved in, um, is that what you're seeing? Are you, are you, is that your gut instinct, or are you still a little more muted on the House? Um, I'm probably more bullish on the House than the Senate. Um, I'm, I'm very bullish, I think, on the Senate. Uh, much more, I'm, you know, Scott, you've worked with me on campaigns. I'm, I'm getting attacked now by, by Republican friends for being, uh, you know, where's this Robert Blizzard been, Mr. <laughs> Optimism? But I, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I, let me just let me just let me just tell everybody that listens to this show. If you want to feel bad <laughs> about your campaign, if you want to feel bad about the job you've done for the last year, if you want to feel like you're a total failure, call Robert and get a yep. polling briefing yep. in your campaign headquarters. And yep. and if you feel like in your organization morale is too high, <laughs> and, that people, and that people are irrationally exuberant. Robert Blizzard will come and solve all your problems. Let me <laughs> retweet right here. Retweet, retweet. Now, 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 this year, Robert, I, I am, I, I am one of the Republicans who has. When I hear you say positive things, my eyebrows immediately arch because yeah. I take notice. I take notice. I mean, it's. I, I have. I think the challenge is. I, I've I've tried to stay away from a plus or minus in terms of number of seats. Um. I think that's I, – I, as a Republican person here, I, I think that's a – I don't want to put myself in that expectations game, if you will. Um, but I do think, based on everything we're seeing out there, I would be shocked uh, as of what's today, October 26th or whatever, whenever we're going to air this, October 27th, 28th. As of basically this week, I would be shocked if we're not – if the plus or minus isn't 240 or so. Republican seats in the House when it's all said and done, which, to your point, Scott, puts you at probably about a 30-plus seat uh, pickup. Um, I, I say 240 because even if you get into the into the 240s, that's one of the largest Republican majorities, you know, we've had. Yeah, you don't, you don't know – I don't know – if you're listening at home, you didn't see it. Every jaw just hit the floor <laughs> in the studio here. <laughs> well, but I think it would actually be bigger, but I think a lot of us forget – that we picked up a dozen seats in 20. Um, and, and, and look, I mean, just look at where things are. I mean, for example, when you look at, you know, just kind of a couple points here, I think number one, when you look at just the generic ballot nationally and Biden's approval nationally, um, they are right now basically in that range of, if you give it a two, three point Republican margin on the national generic ballot, you know, that's, that's usually, you know, anywhere from 2014, where we picked up, uh, you know, a dozen seats and got to 247, um, to you know, we had a three-point margin on the the uh, NBC News poll in, in 94. You know, I was in like middle school, um, you know, which which gave Republicans like 230 seats. So I think the point being is I, the numbers are there to, to support it. I think secondly. And I think this goes back to the point Scott was making about, well, we're follow the money here a little bit. And when you look at I, the one thing I always look a lot at is the, is the Cook political report. Amy Walter and those guys there just do an outstanding job um, of going through races. And, and right now they've got uh, 211 seats in kind of Republican lean likely territory, which means, OK, Republicans are starting at a floor of 211. Uh, Democrats are starting at a, a floor of about 191. 
They've got 10 seats uh, that are GOP held right now in a toss-up category. Um, the average across those 10 seats was Biden winning 53-45. So, again, if you're, if you're playing and, – and the 23 uh, Democrat-held House seats in toss-up category – uh, the 2020 average across those seats was was very similar. It was Biden plus six, 52-46 over Trump. If if you are playing in, if those are the toss ups, you know that's yikes. Um, and usually, what's happened the last few cycles is those toss up seats tend to all go in one direction, you know. And so, if, if I mean, look, if Republicans win even three quarters of those toss up seats. I mean, that already puts you at 236, 237, somewhere in that range. And I know just because of other, some of the ones I've seen polling in, internal polling in some of the, uh, even the, the, the further edges of their spots, I mean, there's some winnable seats there as well. Um, that being said, hey, that's what the polling shows. That's what the data shows. You still got to get the votes out, like all those caveats. But I'm pretty, I'm pretty bullish on it. I mean, Guys, look at the places where we're playing. I mean, Connecticut 5, Rhode Island, uh, you know, the Maloney seat in New York. Um, Oregon. Oregon, two seats in Oregon. You know, Pennsylvania seats, the two seats here right around the corner here for me in Virginia, the Spamberger seat. I mean, if you're playing in all those seats, that's that's usually a recipe. And it's the whole cycle. If the New York governor's race is even remotely competitive – if the Oregon, and I know there's other shit going on in Oregon, but if the Oregon governor's race is competitive, right? I mean, in Connecticut, you're going to pick up a seat in Rhode Island. I mean, that's not a not eat wave type year, you know. And it's and and I think the other thing is based on what happened over the summer. To be honest, they're really everyone's talking about a Republican surge here at the end. There's no Republican surge. The real, the numbers have not really changed that much. It's just people are coming off the undecided and as we we've seen it, as we've kind of discussed, they're voting Republican because they're not happy with the direction of the country. And I, I, you know, I find me an issue where where you think things are going well in this country, any issue. Does it also Mm. translate to who's motivated to show up? And it's one thing to say who's where they fall, but it might be people who just stay home. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some of that. I it's, it's, we're kind of in a weird spot now about 10 days out or so where I really started paying more attention now to kind of what's coming in the early vote, the absentee vote. Um, there's some States now, I mean, based on what we're seeing, I think, I think there's States that, that are already off the map for the Democrats. I mean, like Ohio, I mean, if, if these, if these numbers, these early absentee numbers are right, I mean, there's no way they're going to win Ohio. Why is that? No way they're going to win. North what are you Carolina. seeing there? What, what is the numbers about Ohio that tells you that? Well, the, the, the model party that's coming in on the early vote is, is overwhelmingly Republican. Um, and, and so that speaks to two things. I think one, it speaks to an enthusiasm gap that we've seen kind of grow back in Republicans favor. Cause that's one thing the Dobbs decision did do was, was, was provide some juice to Dems terms of enthusiasm. Um, but I think number two, it also speaks not just to a Republican enthusiasm advantage, but uh, some softer Dems, maybe not just being so excited to come out and vote. Um, you know, what are, again, what are they coming out to support? The Inflation Reduction Act? I mean, like, you know, it's, I, I, I mean, you know, again, I, there's only so negative I can be over time at some point. <laughs> I, you see the numbers start coming in, you're like, it's going to be a good night. I mean, unless, again, still got 10 days to go, things can change. You never know. But based on where we are today, I, I'd be shocked if we don't, you know, win 240 in the House. 
How about the Senate here, Robert? Let's go first of all. This with, with your big number first. We'll go ahead and just we'll uh, we won't bury the lead right to it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the Senate, I, I I think Republicans are going to win the Senate. Um, I the number I go back I, again. It, I just struggle with it because I I there's more arguments to be made about the Senate potentially staying pretty close than there are for the house. I mean, even guys, even go back to 2018, you know, 2018, you know, Republicans picked up seats in the Senate. I know the map was very good that year, but we were able to do that despite losing 40 seats in the house. So there is more evidence, you know, from, from historical trends of seeing a little bit of a split decision there, you know, between the house and the Senate. Um, and I think we've had we've had some some challenging uh, nominees in some spots for sure that have made things a little more of a struggle. Uh, but that being said, you know, and I, I think you know, gun to my head today, I would probably put us uh, in the majority. Whether we get to fifty two, fifty three, fifty four, I think just depends on a number of different you know factors out there um, and how deep how deep this this really goes. So maybe not Robert, a runoff in Georgia. Go ahead, Scott. Well, Robert's predictions are very important. The way we fund the Flowery Country podcast is by voting on the predicted markets. And so <laughs> we're basically inviting you on as uh, this is insider revenue trading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You want to run us through the map? Let's get let's get quick hits on each race. Give us your, your 15 seconds on each state. Joe. Well, we just did, did Pennsylvania, but let's go ahead and stay there for a moment there. Let's go. What, what do you think about Pennsylvania? I think it's 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 been a a, a very very tight race. Um, I think again, I think it's a state where Fetterman in all the public stuff and all the other stuff I've seen um, has been sitting you know just below fifty percent of the vote really since he became the nominee. Um, I think the race has been uh, he has been getting about ninety eight ninety nine percent of the Democratic votes already been coalesced. I think he's very close to it and been close to a ceiling. Um, which is why Oz has been growing because um, those voters as they've kind of come off and some of those Republicans who are not real happy about Oz coming out of a very contentious primary are kind of coming home here at the end. And I think that is a, a very tight race. And I think the challenge with that race as opposed to the others is that's the only one that I think is on the map right now. That's, that's uh, a possible pickup for Democrats possible. And so that's the one where you could see, it's almost like, you know, if you're going in for a touchdown in the one yard line, you fumble it and they go back the other way. You have that big 14 point swing. You have a big swing there if we, if we lose Pennsylvania, because now you drop down to 49 and you got to win two, you know, to get up across. So I think that's that one is is difficult. But I going into it right now, I'd rather be Oz and Fetterman the last 10 days of the race. So in Georgia, we have more allegations coming out Wednesday against Herschel Walker. This is happening like in uh, Pennsylvania, where you have this already this pretty big uh, amount, despite the voter suppression in Georgia, a lot of people voting early. Uh, so, Jim oh. Eagle, Jim Eagle has landed. <laughs> That's right. All right, Georgia. I, I don't know, um, Georgia. Jeez, I, I start with I the hard ones. Well, I, in case he has to go, in case the play football team calls. Go well, ahead. no, I, I think with Georgia. I, Everything that I've seen indicates it, it's it potentially is headed to a runoff situation. Um, so I'll kind of just you know play pass a little bit with Georgia and just uh, do that. I look, I mean, just in the spirit of just you know complete honesty here, um, I will 
regardless of what any poll shows me, I'm going to think Herschel Walker is going to win that race um, for whatever reason. I, I think it's the same reason I'm sitting in my office here and I have, I have pictures of Deshaun Watson up in my, in my uh, office here because he won a natty for Clemson and Herschel Walker won a natty for Georgia. And I think it's going to be really hard uh, for a lot of Georgia voters to turn around and, 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 and not vote for him. I also think it's kind of similar with the challenges with, with talking about the Fetterman race, despite all of the problems Fetterman had last night and all the issues that he's had. Um, and, you know, you feel bad for the guy, obviously, but the problem with it is it, we are so partisanized. We are so polarized right now that, you know, it's hard to believe any Democrats are coming off of Fetterman. And I think it's similar with Georgia and Herschel Walker. And I also think you have Brian Kemp who's going to help him out. So I think, I would probably lean still into Walker in that race, um, but I, I, that one could be headed to a runoff as well. You already mentioned Ohio and, and Vance there. We'll, we'll go ahead and put Florida in the same category. Let's yeah, go to North Carolina. I think North Carolina's done. Um, I'd be surprised if she gets over 46. Uh, you know, he's already growing. At the, he's, at the, uh, there was a pullout today, had her at 44, 45, with Biden at 40. Um, the early vote, absentee vote, that stuff that's come in. I don't. I don't think that'll be on the radar. I think it'll be an early call on election night. Curveball here, New Hampshire. So if there's two states that I think that are under talked about, if that's a phrase, um, I'd probably put New Hampshire and Colorado together in that. I think you've got two states where I know that more money's coming into uh, New Hampshire, um, but I think those two states are within striking distance um, for Republicans. I'm not necessarily feeling uh, tremendous about them, uh, just looking at the public stuff out there, but um, I think they are definitely within striking distance because, again, in both of those states, uh, New Hampshire, I think, is closing a little bit more now than we've seen, but we haven't really seen much in terms of anything publicly from Colorado recently. Uh, But Colorado, Bennett was at 49. Biden's approval is about 42. So, again, that's right on that. As as Scott asked that question earlier, that 42 might be that Mendoza line. And then New Hampshire, um, you know, again, she she was at, I think, 48 in a poll today or 47, somewhere in there. Biden, low 40s. More money. Danger zone. Yeah. You know, it's one of those ones where, you know, maybe. I I think, to me, guys, that's, that's the difference between the wave years we have now and what we saw in 2010 and 94 and in 06 to some extent. In those wave years in the past, one party was not enthusiastic and the other one was jacked up. And now what you've got is you've got jacked up both R's and D's, um, but the key there is independent voters in those two states. How are they going to flip over? Um, and if there's if there's two states that abortion and that Dem enthusiasm helped keep into the Democratic uh, calm, it may be Colorado or Hampshire. But I, I wouldn't be shocked to see those be very tight on election night. You've questioned the aggregators out there, and and uh, I am curious about your thoughts about Ron John in Wisconsin because some of the aggregators have that as a toss up. And I'm guessing with your wave predictions that you think he's uh, the <laughs> the election. I'm never going to live this down. This <laughs> uh, and of course, the one cycle that I think it's going to happen, it probably won't. Right? Um, Forty eight. <laughs> you know. That one, I think, going back to, I think we were talking earlier about the crime issue. I, you know, a lot of talk about some of the challenging nominees we've had this cycle. I think the Dems really screwed the screwed up there. Um, you know, he's that's it, not been a good situation for them. Uh, the Marquette poll, which I, of all the public ones out there, is one of the more reputable ones up there in Wisconsin. I think their last poll had him up five or six points over fifty. Uh, By you know, not tough for Biden, and, and that's that's a state. 
And it's kind of similar, which another one I know you're probably going to get to in a second, where a general rule of thumb, even just the Biden 42 number, but the other general rule of thumb is think of states that have high proportions of white working class voters and white blue collar voters, um, because those are the types of states that are as, as the as, as, as black voters and, and Hispanic voters and younger, well, Hispanic to a certain extent, I guess you should say, and younger voters and urban voters have kind of trended way more Democrat, more progressive, more liberal, more left. I mean, I, I think we are going to see shockingly insane numbers among rural voters across the country. Uh, we were all, remember, very surprised with how well Youngkin did in Virginia with that rural vote. Um, I don't think anything, guys, over the last year has done anything to really make them happier uh, about the direction of the country. And I, I think they're going to come out in droves um, this cycle. Before we go out west, just for Sean and Kevin's sake before, how about Kentucky? <laughs> you know, I think it's going to be the, – the bet should be where does Rand finish vis-a-vis McConnell McGrath. So – Scott, I don't remember what was it? Is it sixteen points? Uh, McConnell got to, he got to sixty, right? Was it fifty-eight forty-two? I don't remember something like that. Sixty forty? Yeah, I thought he, he he it was twenty. Yeah, I think it was twenty. I think we got to twenty. Yeah, I think that was when that was when you know the, uh, the there was the vote switching that the Democrats allege went on here in Kentucky. <laughs> I don't know if you all recall that. That was the original uh, of us, stolen election. Speaking 57, of election deniers, yes. Fifty-seven thirty-eight. Yeah. What was it? Thirty-eight. Fifty-eight thirty-eight. All right. Fifty-eight thirty-eight. Fifty-seven point so, eight. I think. I think it's in that ballpark, probably. I think uh, I'd say ran by fifteen, just to be somewhere in there. I mean, I'm not. I mean, I, I've done polling all across the state uh, in the last month. I've, I've not seen anywhere where he's where Rand's having any issues. Um, and I, I don't know what the I don't know if Booker is going to get the uh, turnout that, that he's going to need, in um, especially in urban areas, Fayette County, Jefferson County, Bowling Green, Warren County. I don't think he's just going. I don't think he's going to get it. Um, so I think the real question is, is: Is Booker in the 30s or in the 40s? And it's probably. Forty percent is probably that plus or minus. I could I could probably I could probably make a case he's at forty two or he's down in the 38 percent. This is flyover mm-hmm. country overall, but I love the fact that Robert Blizzard knows Kentucky better than most Kentuckians. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, have you have you been here often? Yes, I mean I've done focus groups in Pikeville. I've done focus group. I've been to Hazard. Uh, I've done Owensboro. I've had great barbecue in Owensboro. I've also had mistakes in Owens. I think it's Owensboro. You guys correct me if I'm wrong. Where I thought my flight leaving Louisville was at a certain time, but because of the time, is it the right? Yeah, the time zone change. Uh, yeah, I've spent way too many nights in Frankfurt um, for my own good. And uh, like haven't two, we that's all? Like two or three. We all have, yeah. <laughs> well, we won't ask you about Old Hickory versus Moonlight in, in Owensboro. Instead, we'll go out west and let's let's go to let's go to Arizona. Let's go to that uh, race. I think that's I think that's another uh, coin flip at this point. Um, I, everything I've seen, I I think Kerry Lake wins that governor's race out there. Um, uh, I think Hobbs is running an atrociously bad campaign, and I'm saying that just objectively as a as a political observer, um, just terrible campaign. Although I guess now after seeing last night, I can't really fault her for not wanting to, to debate because um, you know we we saw how that worked out for Fetterman last night. But I, you know I. I, I <laughs> 
Kelly's in the consistently in that 46, 48 range and, and Biden's approval's low. The, the challenge with Arizona makes it more difficult. And I think that's the other reason to even just kind of question some of the public stuff out there over the next couple of weeks that you will see is that's basically a hundred percent vote by mail state. You know, they base everyone's just, they just send you ballots. And, and so, I mean, we, I, I doubt we'll see, they're usually pretty good about counting the vote there. Um, but it's all going to, I mean, no, no big cliche here, but it's all going to come down to Maricopa County, you know, independent voters um, and, and where they go is how much of a Delta is there between where Lake is and, uh, and where Masters is. But I, I think that's, that's a, uh, another situation um, that's, that's kind of a coin flip uh, for, for where we go. But I, I kind of like where we are right now. Before we go to Nevada, another bordering state is Utah. I find that to be fascinating to see how this is all going to shake out. Yeah, I've not focused much on Utah. Um, I don't know too much about it other than, you know, the McMullen grifter kind of stuff out there. Um, McMuffin. Yes, I, 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 I don't know. Um, I probably I, I'm not a uh, I'm probably not a, a good uh, I don't have a good idea on that one, guys. Okay, let's go to Nevada then, right next door. I think Nevada's going uh, Republican. Um, I, I, it goes back to that point I made earlier. We have the white working class voters. Uh, there's, there's, if there's one state that Trump probably should have flipped from 2016 to 2020, it was probably there. Um, the biggest thing that Democrats have always had going for them there is obviously the Culinary Workers Union. Probably not too happy with how the last two years have gone. Um, you know, the economy, inflation, the COVID stuff, you know, when you think about Clark County, I mean, that's problematic. Um, and I think we've got, we've got some good candidates there. I think it'll be tight, but I, I, I like where we are there. And the other thing is that I think it's kind of under the radar a little bit in Arizona and Nevada, Nevada is, um, and to some extent Colorado is, is the Hispanic vote too, which is, I mean, it's, it's, we're not winning the Hispanic vote you know, yet, and I say yet, but oh boy, is it getting better for Republicans. And, uh, and I think those are states where when you're looking at races on the margins here, three, four points in that range, I mean, getting, getting a certain number of Hispanic voters across your side is, is significant. Um, and I think those are some places where, you know, one of the stories out of this election could be that, oh boy, the Democrats, not only are they in trouble with just kind of working class, white working class Americans, but, you know, the Democrats have relied on kind of this rising American electorate to get people like Obama elected and and and, and get anti-Trump people elected, if you will. Uh, but, you know, Hispanic voters are starting to turn. Scott was one of the first people I heard uh, put Tiffany Smiley on the map months ago on this podcast. And it's been interesting to see, you know, some of the coverage out there. Do you think that she has a chance at all against Patty Murray? And watch be, I have I, I've not done any personal uh, polling in that race. I have not uh, paid much attention to that. The other one, um, just off, just or just talking to other states. The other, the other two things that I just I'm starting to kind of like just kind of keep an eye on here over the next ten days are two big states, which is New York and, and Illinois. I am not saying that Republicans are going to win New York or Illinois, um, I, but uh, Chuck Schumer six years ago got over seventy percent in New York State. Um, I think there's a good chance he's in the 50s this time around. You know, I mean, the, he's, again, if, if you think about it, they're going to get kind of close to what they're going to pull. I think him hitting 60 is, is going to be, you know, challenging. We'll see. 
if New York City comes in and comes in big, gives them their usual 80% in the five boroughs, um, it could be kind of wild to see. I mean, again, Schumer's going to win. There's no doubt. But where, where does he end up? And the other one, which, again, flying a little under the radar, I think we all forget that it was only, I think, six years ago that, uh, you know, uh, I can't remember, Mark Kirk was a senator from Illinois, a Republican senator. Um, I, I think that race could be closer than people are thinking. Um, again, not saying I think the Republican necessarily wins in Illinois, but if there's other states out there to kind of keep your eye on and watch. And the other one is Oregon. Uh, which I know we have a crazy ass candidate there, uh, you know, like very Looney Tunes. But if that if that gov race is really that tight, you know, again, that's going to kind of hold things together a little bit, um, you know, in that state. So there's some other ones kind of off the radar there that I think are just going to be kind of interesting to watch come in um, on election night. Does anything uh, matter between now and election day now, or is it pretty much pretty much sealed in and it's just a matter of people showing up? It's a lot. Of, I would say it's mostly baked in at this point. I mean, the the big again the biggest number that I always take a look at is is where the president's job approval rating is. I'm a firm believer that that's what holds midterms in place. Um, and you know, to be honest, I mean, Biden's approval is 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 in September one was at 42, October one was 43. Last week he's at 43. He's kind of inching back down to 41, 42. It's not moving. Um, you know, at 18. You know, Trump's approval through elect- October through Election Day was 44. In 14, Obama's approval from basically July 1st through Election Day was 42. I mean, they're not – there's a lot of talk out there, but there's really not as much movement as people think there is. The voice you've been hearing all throughout this Flower Country episode is that of Robert Blizzard of Public Opinion Strategies, one of the top-tier Republican pollsters in the United States of America. He polls all over the country, Robert. You've been nice enough to share your wisdom and insights with us tonight as we come down the stretch drive of the 2022 midterm election. Before we let you go, I am going to put you on the spot. Oh, already? <laughs> Again? Crystal I've been pretty. I've been pretty out there. On- <laughs> <laughs> I hope this doesn't get released till November 10th. <laughs> 2024. Yeah. What will begin the minute the polls close on 2022? Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm, I'm gonna ask it this way: What is more likely that both parties renominate their 2020 nominees, or that both parties nominate new people? I think it's way more likely that it's new people. Um, I think it's way more likely, and and the sole reason for that, Scott, is I I do not think Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. I think I think if if this if this election turns out the way that I'm so boldly saying it is now. Um, the only reason Biden's approval rating climbed out of the mid to high 30s uh, back in, in the spring was because Democrats came home very early as a result of the kind of the coalescing that happened as a result of Dobbs. And um, I think what happens after this election, if it really is a drubbing, is Biden's approval rating is going to go back down. And, and I mean, back down, meaning it's going to be just as bad as it is with Republicans and independent voters, but it's going to soften back up with Democrats. We are quick to forget that before Dobbs, I feel like the New York Times once a week and, and some of our, our friends in the press were writing, you know, basically stories about how Democrats should go and pick a new person. Um, and I think there's going to be so much pressure, so much donor pressure um, on, on Biden uh, to not be able to run again. And I think it's it's much more likely 
that we have two new people than we have uh, the uh, rematch of, of Trump and Biden. And by the way, I'll just throw this out there as kind of an ending point for me, at least, is regardless of what happens now in the next two weeks, it has no bearing on what will happen in 2024. I mean, in 94, we dominated. Bill Clinton wins in a mini landslide. In 2010, you know, Obama loses 60 seats. You know, they win. Um, You know, it it has no bearing. Things will completely change. Uh, and based on, on what happens over the next uh, over the next two years and who the nominees are. So just because Republicans are going to have a good cycle right now, that does not mean Republicans have solved all of the Republican problems that we may have with voters. There's the Robert Blizzard that I know. There we go. <laughs> right there. There he is. All right, Robert, thank you so much for joining Flyover Country. Joe, Kevin, Jared, Sean, any final thoughts before we get out of here tonight? This is great. Yeah, this, and, this, this and, was uh, really a joy. Most energized uh, going into the last parts of this election. So thanks for that. <laughs> Good. It was fun, guys. I enjoyed it a lot. All right. You've been listening to Flower Country. I'm Scott Jennings. Next week, let's see. I guess we have one episode left before the elections, guys. Yep. yep. One to go. We'll, uh, we'll uh, break down all the news next week as we head into election day. Uh, and with that, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share it if you like it. We'll see you next week on Flower Country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.